The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing today? If you were expecting to hear the song, Billy's Got His Beer Goggles On, kind of so was I. I'm a little disappointed. Um, I'd love for you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 uh, this morning. We're going to be there in a couple minutes. If you have any questions about our message time today, I'd love for you to send them to 307-316-2023. You can also come up and talk about it. Um, But when you ask questions about our our message time that way, um, we have the opportunity to go online and respond uh, to them um, online in a a kind of in a public way so people learn a little bit more about us, uh, who we are as a church. I want you to imagine uh, this morning that, that we are the church in Ephesus. Some of, you, some of you might find it helpful to close your eyes for a few minutes as I, as I read a few things. So I want you to imagine that we're the church at Ephesus. If we were the church of Ephesus, there would not be a person in the room who would have been a Christian for more than 10 years, probably more like five to seven years. Some of us would have actually heard the Apostle Paul speak on his first visit to our community. Others of us would have been converted by Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila. And a few of us in the room might have even been baptized and had hands laid on us by Paul himself when he returned to our town. Others of us would have sat under Paul's teaching, maybe even argued with him in the lecture hall at Tyrannus. If we were craftsmen or silversmith, silversmiths, we would have joined Demetrius in his riot, and we would have shouted for hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Feeling conviction from the Holy Spirit, many of us would have burned our incantation books in a public bonfire. We would have watched literally as our livelihoods went up in smoke in the midst of this bonfire. And now, just a few years later, there are, there are indications of our former lives all around us. There are reminders of our former lives all around us. For those who didn't convert, our families and friends, members of the Silversmith Guild, they all hate us as Christians. The Temple of Artemis, which is just northeast of town on a hill, is open and it's doing business, and part of, part of the ritual was, were sexual practices because the priests and priestesses were temple prostitutes. And for those who didn't convert, our friends and family members would be going to participate in those things during temple worship. The culture of the day would view us as cannibalistic cult members, people who are sexual prudes, people who are out to ruin everyone's fun, They would be completely offended at our claims that Jesus was the only way to heaven. This would weary us. Some of us would desire to fight fire with fire. We would would fall into judgmentalism. We'd fall into anger. We'd fall into bitterness. Others of us would retreat and we'd put up barriers, wanting nothing to do with the outside world. And still others of us would cater to the culture around us. We'd waver and we would give in. 
We'd pick and choose what to, what to believe from Christianity from, and from the other multitudes of religions all around us. We would, we would merge the cultural religions of the day with our own. To avoid being seen as legalistic, we would laugh at the obscene stories and foolish talk and coarse joking of everyone around us. We'd begin to give up meeting together because it just wasn't that valuable. And after all, Christ has saved us and we have the Holy Spirit. What else is there to know? What more is there for us to do? We'd spend our time thinking only of our own desires, of our own preferences and power and place and position. We'd be driven by our emotions, by our whims and whatever our minds and passions wanted us to do. And there would be some of us who were frustrated by both sides. Some of us who were frustrated with the legalism of some and the openness of others. And we just wouldn't know how to respond in the midst of all of this. And one day we would receive a letter from Paul. This was the same Paul that that introduced our body, introduced us to Jesus Christ. And his message is simple. He says, God has, God has given you life through Jesus and through the work of the Holy Spirit that is living within you. And you need to just ask him for it. You need to just accept this life. Paul goes on, he'll say, a few years ago, before you knew who Christ was, you were spiritually dead. You heard the good news through me, Paul, and you have a gift You have a purpose in your life, and that gift and purpose in your life is to serve other people, to live for other people, to live for God. Your life has meaning to bring unity and maturity to this body that you gather with every week. You're not just just there to be passive consumers, taking in whatever gets talked about, but you you are present to be involved and engaged. And you can only do this when you live the life that God has for you. As we talked about last week, this old life is, is the thing that we have to cast off. We can't keep it around. We put on the new life, and it sounds difficult. If it sounds difficult, it's because it is. And as Christians, that, that difficulty doesn't go away. It is not an easy thing to cast off the old life and put on the new But at least we have the Holy Spirit as Christians guiding us in that. For those of us in the room who who aren't united with Christ, this is an impossibility. It's a literal impossibility. As difficult as it is for, for those of us with the Holy Spirit to live our lives for Christ, we're at least resting on him. We are trusting in him to do that work for us. But for those of us who are not united with Christ, we don't. We don't have a Holy Spirit in our lives to bear the weight when we fall short, to give us grace. Let's pick up in Ephesians 5, chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. 
Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things that people do, for once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of the light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them, for the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we ask this morning that our ears and minds and eyes and hearts would be open to your word. Help us to hear what you are telling us. Help us to be filled with the desire to live a life of honor and obedience to you. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So Paul ends chapter 4 by telling us that we must move from death to life. We must, we must cast aside those old things. Last week I demonstrated that by my nasty old running shirt that I've had for 10 years. And we cast that off and we put on a new one. What I found was interesting about that is some of you after the time last week, after our 10.15, went up to my wife to tell her how to continue to wash the shirt. And I think that's kind of funny. And I also think it's in, I think there's a metaphor there. Because what we want to do is we just want to continue to keep old things around. We want to continue to hold on to old things and just make them clean on our own. And I know you were, I know you were being kind to her and you were looking out for me so I can keep wearing that nasty shirt and I appreciate that. But I think there's a deeper truth in that. So, so Paul ends four by telling us that we have to cast off old things, put on new things, and then five, verse one, he tells us the only way that we can make that happen. The only way to get rid of old things and put on new things is to imitate God, is to determine what pleases the Lord, and then to act on it. That's the way to cast off the old and put on the new, is to imitate God, determine what pleases the Lord, and then to act on it. So let's talk about imitating God. 
Children always want to imitate their parents, whether they do good things or bad things. Now, Dave talked about how old he was, and I'm not as old as Dave, but I am old. I remember there was a commercial when I was growing up, when I was in my teens. This uh, teenage boy is in his, is in his bedroom, and he's, and he's listening to music, and his dad walks in, and he's got a box, and maybe some of you remember this commercial. And in, he opens the box, and inside the box is marijuana. And this father starts to question the son. Do you remember the commercial now? He says, where'd you get this? Talk to me. Who taught you how to do this stuff? And what was the line? What was the son's response? Yes, that was perfect. You even said it right. I learned it from you, okay? I learned it from watching you. Parents, our children are watching what we do. And they're imitating us. And parents, if you've ever had your child say a bad word, and then if you were honest for a moment and you wondered where they got that from, they probably learned it from you, didn't they? They probably heard you say that. And what Paul is, Paul is telling the believers here in Ephesians chapter 5, that the way to live new lives is to imitate God, not their culture. He's painting, he's painting a picture of, of what it looks like to imitate God versus imitating the culture. And he spent most of the first chapter telling them that they were God's children and all of the rewards and the benefits that came with that relationship. They were loved and they were chosen and they were holy and without fault because of Christ. They were purchased and they were freed from their sins. They were forgiven. They were in on his plan to save the world. They were united with Christ. These are, these are all things that were available to them because of that relationship with God. And we imitate God when we follow the example of Christ and his love. And this was mostly demonstrated for us in his sacrifice on the cross for us. And I think for some of us, this is, this is the first roadblock that we run into when we think about the person of Jesus Philosopher by the name of Soren Kierkegaard said this, Our culture is content to admire Jesus, and so are many Christians. See, there's a difference between admiring Jesus and imitating Jesus, isn't there? To look at Jesus and, and say, yeah, he's a, he's a good person, he's a good teacher, but that's just an admiration Jesus' example for us when it comes to being a servant was to wrap a towel around his waist, pour water into a bowl, and then to wash his disciples' feet. And that's a really noble thing. Our culture looks at that and says that's a very noble thing for someone to do. But the question for us is not, are we admiring Jesus for what he does The question for us is, are we imitating that? Are we following in his footsteps? Are we doing the things that he did? And the bottom line is, if we're not, then all we are is admiring him. We are no better than the rest of the world that that thinks of Jesus as a good teacher. And this section here where in verses 3 to 5, where, where Paul talks about sexual immorality, this would have been a real punch to the gut to the people of 
Ephesians, Ephesus, and it ought to do the same to us. This text ought to convict us. In many ancient religions, sexual practices were tied to worship, and it's really no different today, is it? Our culture has so successfully connected identity with our sexuality, and it has so successfully disconnected our identity from who God says that we are. And it's done so, and it's made self the new idol. Our culture's view of sexuality has made self the new idol. What's our culture's chant of sexuality? I can have sex with whomever I want, wherever I want, however I want, whenever I want. There's a lot of eyes in that statement, aren't there? Don't fall for it. That's what Paul is telling the church at Ephesus. Don't, don't fall for this lie. And we are, we are barraged by that story, by that narrative all day long. And it's a lie is what Paul is saying. But the biblical story is different. The biblical narrative of human sexuality is not what our culture says it ought to be. Listen to, listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says this. He says, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? Doesn't this sound completely the opposite of the way our culture looks at human sexuality? This is, this is a counter to it. He continues, you do not belong to yourself. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. Well, Christians, what was that price? It was Jesus. So you must honor God with your body. See, our culture is painting a different story. Our culture is painting a different narrative about human sexuality. And when we read God's story, when we read God's narrative, we learn that we don't live for ourselves. We belong to someone else. We belong to the person who has bought us with a high price. And if we go back to Ephesians, Paul's, Paul says that we were full of darkness. That's who we were before we entered into this relationship with God. But now we have the light. I think the phrasing there is kind of interesting. He says we were full of darkness, like this is who you were. You were full of darkness. But now he's saying you have the light. Like those aren't the same things. One of those is talking about an identity, and one of them is talking about something else. It's talking about receiving something else, and that's the light. And that's what we have to understand as Christians. And as non-Christians, we have to understand this as well, is God did all the work. God gives us something. He gifts us something. So when we live in the light, when we, when we act upon this gift that God has given us, what we what we find in our lives is goodness and righteousness and truth. But these things don't just happen. And I talk to, I talk to so many Christians, so many believers that think that things like goodness and righteousness and truth just happen. As though we, as though we come out of the, the water in the baptistry and then the Holy Spirit has sprinkled some kind of Holy Spirit fairy dust on us. And we are all of a sudden 
externally changed people. But God wants us, God wants us to cultivate these characteristics of goodness and righteousness and truth. And we cultivate them in, in the same cliche ways that we've been talking about for years. And if you've been in the church, you've heard it a dozen times. We cultivate what God is making us to be through prayer and through Scripture and through our relationships with other believers. And I know that that sounds so tired and so boring and like so much hard work. But I ask you, what, what have you ever done that was difficult that didn't require hard work? This isn't about earning your salvation. This is about cultivating that gift that God has given you. And the more we do this, the more we cultivate that new life, the more we live as people in the light, the more we're able to determine what pleases God. We're able to discern what pleases God. We're able to figure out what pleases God. We don't have to get caught up in asking all of these questions. What do I have to do to to please God? See, if we're cultivating a relationship with Him, it becomes easier, and that sounds like a stretch for some of us. So back in Romans, in verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all He's done for you. Let them, your bodies, be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to copy God. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you'll know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. See, there's a lot of things we could talk about, and someday we're going to do a series on Romans, and it'll actually last longer than this one on the church at Ephesus, believe it or not. But Paul, again, is diagnosing a problem. He's, he's telling humanity that we have a significant problem in our lives, and the only fix is what God can do, and that is going to press up against us all the time. If you read something in the Bible and you're bothered and you're offended by it, listen. Good. That, that, that's what's, that is what's supposed to happen. Because when we read Romans 1 and 2, what we see is we're not following the customs and behaviors of God, but the ones of this world. So God is going to confront us with that. We don't think correctly because if we thought correctly, then God wouldn't need to transform us in the way that we think. These things wouldn't be necessary. These things wouldn't be necessary if everything was fine in our relationship with God. So there's something that's, that's deeply broken, that's deeply wrong in the heart of a man. And God is here to fix that. He's here to resolve that. God has work to do in our lives, and he's often going to take us to places that we just don't want to go. Do you remember when you were a child and your parents would take you places you didn't want to go? And your parents took you anyway? See, God, when we're not in relationship with him, 
as places that, that he wants us to go. And God, even when we are in relationship with him, has places that he wants us to go, and we don't want to go there. So God has, God has something in mind in taking us to these places. And this too presses on, on us because we're not interested in going where God wants. We don't want to follow him. We don't want to go beyond ourselves. We don't want to go outside of our own comfort zones. And, and this is why, like, as this, as this light begins to overtake the darkness in our lives, this is why we so often feel tension in what's happening in our lives. And part of that tension is when that, when that light flips on inside of us, we begin to think that we're not as advanced as we thought we were. Because our real selves, our inner selves, the parts of our lives that are, that are not transformed, the parts of our lives that are not yet redeemed, become obvious, don't they? They become glaringly obvious. So as we determine what pleases the Lord, we want to take that light into the world and we want to reveal the world for what it is. We want to reveal our culture's stories and our culture's narrative for what they are, and what they are is false. They're not real stories. They're not real narratives. We have to, we have to point that out to people. We have to demonstrate to them that the more they try to find satisfaction in things that are not of God, the less happier they are going to be. And for some people, that takes a really long time for them to come to that conclusion, for them to understand that. But interestingly, they know. I knew, which is why I always pursued other things before I knew Christ. Constant pursuit of things to make me happy, to fill my life with joy, to fill my life with satisfaction. And it didn't work. Like there was something wrong with the system. And there is, and it's our, it's our sin. And see, we're not, we're not in the light as Christians. We're not in the light so that we can boast and gloat about how good we are in the light. That's not, that's not why, as Christians, we're in the light. To be, re, to be able to reveal to everyone else why we are so good and everyone else is so bad. No, our lamps are lit to lead others to the light. So we can live open, exposed lives, truthful, authentic lives as people who have been transformed by Jesus, and people will want to will want a part of that. They'll want to go to where the light is, which means we have to go into dark places, not to participate, but to expose. Many years ago, we lived in Ohio, and we owned a home. And my dad and his wife uh, came to visit our house one time. And a few days after they left, they called us. And my dad said, hey, I have something weird I need to talk to you about. I'm, I'm not sure how to do this, so I'm just going to say it. Um, he said, we kind of thought your house smelled. I'm like, Okay. Um, and, and then when I, he said, you might want to, you might want to look into that. And, and so I had this conversation with Anne 
And, and we had noticed something, like, like over the previous few weeks, we had kind of noticed something, but we weren't really sure what it was. And, and because we were living in it, right, we were living in the house, over a period of time, we just kind of got used to it. So go down under the, under the house into our crawl space, and, and sure enough, our sewer line had, had backed up underneath, underneath our house. It was, if you've ever had that happen, it was awful. If you haven't ever had that happen, it's awful. So then we had to clean all that up, right? We had to take care of it. So, so here's, here's the reality. Here's a little lesson from that. Some people don't know that their life stinks. And, and our responsibility is to not stand on a street corner and tell them how much they stink and to tell them how stupid they are for believing what they believe and feel like they feel and do what they do and judge them for all of those things. That's, that is not the responsibility of someone who has, who has a light. The responsibility of someone who has a light is to show them what clean shirts smell like, to show them what the new life smells like. Because there's a lot of people that aren't going to know unless you reveal it to them. And it might be deeply embedded, like they might know something is off, like, like in the story that I shared. Like Anne knew that there was something off, but we had no idea what it was. We needed someone else to come into our home and point it out to us. To turn the light on and reveal it to us. This is our role as Christians, to imitate God, to determine what pleases the Lord, and then lastly, we, we act upon what we do. We act upon what pleases God. But we have to know ourselves well. We have to have a, a, a high sense of self-awareness. We have, to, we have to know who we are, which is, which is why Paul, in this text says, be careful how you live, not like fools, but like people who are wise. Well, how do we, how do, we do that? How do, how do we determine who we are? How, how do we have a high level of, of self-awareness of what's really taking place in our lives? Well, let's go back to Romans 12, verse 3. Paul says this, because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. So Paul could be talking to us. Let's pretend for the sake of, for the sake of fun that Paul is talking to us. Don't think you're better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Well, there's a sermon in there too. Measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. We don't compare ourselves to other Christians who are failing miserably in their lives and we are so much better than they are. We measure ourselves by the faith God has given us. We'll talk about that in another sermon. The NIV in this text says this, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. 
So here's, here's what that means for us to think of ourselves in sober judgment. We want to be of sound mind when we think of ourselves. We want to, we want to, be, we want to have our minds sober. We want to be sound. And as I was reading and preparing this, the phrase beer goggles popped into my head. Which is why the sermon is called, Billy's Got His Beer Goggles On. Because when we talked about this in our small group on Tuesday night, Jenna Maltby said, hey, have you ever heard that song called Billy's Got His Beer Goggles On? I'm like, no. So then we had, of course, we had to listen to that song during our small group time. But I think it's a perfect example. Because there are a lot of people in our culture, and there are a lot of Christians who have beer goggles on. See, we don't have an accurate understanding of who we are. Because because we don't think of ourselves with sober judgment. We have a faulty understanding of who we are as Christians. Our vision is skewed by our drunkenness. And I'm not I'm not only talking about alcohol. I'm talking about how our how our vision is skewed when we are drunk on affirmation. I'm talking talking about how our vision is skewed when we are drunk on pride. I'm talking about how our vision is skewed when we are drunk on arrogance. I'm talking about how our vision is skewed on our self-righteousness because we've got verses memorized. Compared to other people, I'm doing pretty good. But that's not God's measurement in Romans 12. Three, God's measurement is according to the faith that God has given you. And I think some of us are drunk on our knowledge. See, what God is doing is he's telling us to, when you consider yourself, don't be drunk. Be sober. Be honest. Don't think that you're better than you really are. And here's the thing. Only deep, consistent encounters with the light keep us honest. It is only by living in the light that we remain honest, that we remain exposed, remain open to who we really are. Encounters with the light reveal whether we are fools or whether we are wise. Fools are governed by their emotions. Fools only think of the present. Fools are aimless and wandering. Fools are guided by their own preferences and power and place and position. But the wise, people, people who are in the light, they think about their lives. They actually stop to think in the midst of that swirl of emotions and in the swirl of what, what my passionate desires want me to do and what I think might be a good idea. They, they stop for a minute. They pause and they think about their lives. They reflect on what they do. See, people who are wise, when they're bothered and offended by what someone says to them about something that's happening in their life, when, when they, maybe when they hear someone give a message or, or they read a text and they're bothered and offend, offended by it, the wise stop for a minute and they ask a very important question. Why am I so offended by this? Why am I so offended by this? Paul in Romans 12. Why am I so offended by the fact that 
He's telling me that I have to look at myself with sober judgment. Why am I so offended by just a few chapters earlier? Paul said, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Why am I so offended by that? See, that's what wise people do is they stop and they ask that question. And then they take a bonus step, and this is my favorite one. They open this up. And, and their offense drives them deeper into this book. I wonder why God said that. Maybe he said it for a reason. Maybe I should look in this book in other places and see where else he said things like this. See, this is what it means for us to be wise in our understanding of Scripture. We turn to the Bible because, as we've talked about so many times, God's Word's a mirror. And it reflects accurately both the reality of God and the reality of man. I don't mean to sound condescending, and I think I probably did, and I apologize. I'm not out to sound condescending to you. I'm out to tell you how to be wise. Because, because the first crisis of belief that I had when I was back in college, and I got all offended by what the Bible said, this was my response. To heck with it. But, after I learned who Jesus really was, and I started, and I started reading Scripture, and I started being bothered by it, I started to see that, that I have a problem that mankind's problem is me, and I needed to hear that. All the time, I needed to be aware of that. So for us as Christians, when we, when we live rightly, we point to God. We hold our light higher and higher, and we wade further into the darkness. We go into dark places. And, and when we are wrong... When, when we read Scripture and we see that we're wrong, our, our move is to repent of our sin. To thank God for his conviction and to repent of our sin. And to seek God through more prayer, through more study, and more relationships. We seek Jesus because we want to imitate him. And I want to I affirm the Christians in the room for a minute. Living wisely does not narrow your life. See, our culture says to live wisely, to, to live according to yourself, that, that I sentence I gave you earlier. Our culture says if you don't live that way, that you're missing out on something. But living wisely doesn't narrow your life. You're not missing out on anything because you're not living a life of promiscuity. Living wisely liberates your life because you're no longer bound to sin. Because you can choose to be obedient. You're free not to sin. That's what it means for us to live wisely. So acting upon what we've heard begins with self-evaluation. And Paul says once we've evaluated ourselves, we have to make the most of our time. We examine our time, we treat it as a resource, and we make decisions based on it, because our opportunities are fleeting. And there are lots of people here at Westway Christian Church who do this really well. Take advantage of the time. Make the most of the time that they have here. 
I want to tell you about one of them briefly. If you have not met Jenna Maltby yet, which I would be surprised because she's met a lot of people in our church body. But Jenna Maltby, in my mind, is the person who comes to my mind when I think of someone who redeems the time. She's been here for about 18 months. She just got news earlier this week that she's moving away. She's moving to Minnesota. And what I have loved observing about Jenna over the last 18 months is just the way that she gets involved in all sorts of things and the different people she talks to and the relationships that she's built. And she just made the most of her time here. She, along with Jen Dillinger, last year at our, at our park party, at our fall kickoff, she's the one that was walking around with Jen Dillinger, talking to people she had never met before, introducing herself, and just having conversation with people. See, that's what it looks like to make the most of your time. And I love that. And I think as Christians, we, you know, we... This is not the serving message. But getting to know other people, that's a way to serve. And any one of us can do that. Any one of us can talk to people and build relationships with people that we don't know. Jenna's single, and she comes a lot of times to our Tuesday night small group, which is filled with kids. And she's made an impact in that group because she's made the most of her time. She's not bound by things like singleness and marriage and kids or no kids. We make the most of our time because the days are evil. In just a few weeks at the end of the book of Ephesians, Paul's going to tell us that we are at war. Soldiers at war make the most of their time by digging foxholes, by sighting weapons, and by scouting the terrain. There's no time for thoughtlessly lived lives for us as Christians. God has a purpose, and if we ignore him, we return to chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, where we wander around in the dark, we wonder where God is, we wonder why he's not speaking to us, because we're living thoughtless lives. Here's the realize no one except from today, and it was the exact same one as last week, which is why I saved it for the end. Transformed people live transformed lives. Transformed people imitate God by determining what pleases him, and then they act on it. And in order for this to happen, in order for us to imitate him, we have to allow him to act in our lives. Let's pray. God, I just ask that we would continue to have ears to hear this message beyond this moment. That we would consider who it is that we are imitating. Who do we look more like? Do we look more like our culture or do we more look more like Christ? I pray that we will be filled with the desire to determine what pleases you. And then once we know, I pray that we will act upon it. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.